This summer, a mountain becomes a water park. Bigger slides, faster rides, taller waves. An adventure you'll never forget. Get ready to reach the peak of excitement in the great Smoky Mountains. Smoky Mountain Water Park. Conquer the mountain. Season passes available online. Find the What Happened West podcast. It's me, Amelia Robinson. The voice you just heard belongs to the dynamic Sarah Franks of the Dayton Daily News. The audio was recorded about three weeks ago during a Dayton protest we covered that followed the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. Sarah is one of my favorite fellow OU grads in the newsroom. Together, we got to know a lot about tear gas. During this episode, recorded about a week ago, Sarah and I recap what happened that night with Daniel New City Hall reporter Corey Froelich, who had covered the day protest with Sarah. Corey provides an update about what has happened since those protests, and it's been alive. I warn you that this episode contains some strong language. The What Happened Was podcast is a product of Dayton.com, sponsored by the Dayton Daily News. Like and rate this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you find shows you love. Now, here's my talk with Corey and Sarah. How's it going? Good. Yeah, a couple of weeks, but, you know, surviving. What have you been doing? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> no, no, not much. Uh... There were the protests, and then there was a lot of friction, I would say, between some community members and police and city leadership. I guess just attention would probably be the right word. Dayton's Community Police Council, they felt a lot of growing frustration with police and city leadership because they feel like they haven't been listened to. And then the mayor recently announced a five-part plan to try to improve police community relations. I don't know if the council felt like they were part of that and don't quite understand their role in it. So it's a lot's been going on. You two have been on the front lines of the protest. I mean, I was out there the one day, which is actually my last day as a reporter. So, well, I'm still a reporter, but in a different way. But you guys have been out there every week, or Sarah has at least. I mean, I covered the protest the earlier in the day because you covered the set where there was quite a bit of activity and some clashes, police, some disruption. I, I know Sarah covered the night one with you, but I covered the, the afternoon as well. And it was, you know, it was certainly different. A lot more people, a lot more energy. Yeah. I mean, Sarah, what did you think about those? I think that, especially that initial, because my day was kind of split into that first Saturday after Monday when George Floyd was killed. So this was the first weekend, you know, when people really were off work and able to organize officially for the first time. And I knew tensions were going to be high. But I think that 12 o'clock, because I went to the 12 o'clock with you and then 7 o'clock with Amelia. And I think that 12 o'clock one was unique in that the first two hours were very structured and it was a lot of just conversations with people listening in one direction and then some back and forth with the crowd and that was what you know kind of was planned on the Facebook page and that you always expect some unplanned happenings of those things but I think that 12 o'clock one was when we really saw the transition from conversational protests where speakers would take turns coming up to 
once that march initially started through downtown Dayton, that's when things started to flare up a little bit. And it was kind of amazing to watch something go from one mood to the other all in a few hours. The conversations I was hearing, it just felt like such a productive start to it. And as it continued, but it just got very passionate on both sides. And it just was um, really interesting to watch that, especially as a new reporter. And I was telling Amelia that evening, that was by far just the most, not dramatic, but just the most involved, emotional thing I've ever covered. Well, I would say the same thing, and I've been doing it for a long time. I would say besides the tornadoes and the uh, mass shooting, that was perhaps the most intense thing I've covered. Now, I've covered like the Women's March, and that was intense too, but in a very different way. This was like a, an edge of danger in the air. I was worried for everybody that was there. I wasn't worried for myself. I was worried, I guess I was worried for you a little bit, Sarah. Because <laughs> you're a little Sarah. <laughs> I did, I did. I was with, I felt like I was with Mama Amelia. And I, I was, yeah, let's get this shot. And I was like, all right, if, if I'm with Amelia, we're good. Like, okay. I was like, Sarah, don't go too close to the street. <laughs> and that was another thing, especially the noon protest, was that when things got to the, the kind of the climax of the afternoon was when the police made the barrier not letting protesters onto 35. You know, they had kind of formed that bicycle line a couple times, but then they would ease up, let people through, realizing people are going to keep marching one way or the other. Once they drew that hard line at uh, Crafted and Cured, we were in the same spot where we had that Dave Chappelle block party. Essentially, we were two blocks away where me and Corey live. I was seeing these restaurant owners come out with jugs of milk, like people that I just see every day. It was just such like a neighborhood state. It was just such a familiar place to watch that kind of intensity go on. It was interesting because, yeah, as she said, it was, it was essentially a rally or demonstration in front of the federal court building. It began moving and went on a march, and it kind of went around the block. And for a second there, it looked like it was going to end, essentially very close to where it started. But protesters kept going. And some, there was actually some disagreement, you know, visible disagreement between some organizers and some of the protesters about what should happen next. The march continued, went down to the Oregon District and through the Oregon District. And Sarah's right, they encountered and ran into multiple police lines that eventually kind of just receded. You know, eventually they conceded those spots. And then, you know, they were on bikes, so they rode past and then created additional barriers. And they eventually drew the line at Crafted and Cured. They set up a bike line, and then they had some cruisers and some cruisers behind that. And it was very obvious that they were trying to prevent the march from getting onto US 35, which you've seen in other cities. Protesters sometimes have kind of taken over the highway and blocked traffic. Do you think the protesters were actually trying to get on 35? Because some people say that was never the intent. I mean, I personally heard people say they were going to 35. Okay. I mean, it's weird because it's, there's no one... I don't know who's making the decisions. You know, it's kind of the movement of the crowd. It's the, kind of the front people in the crowd kind of decide where it's going. I heard some people say it would be ridiculous to go to 35. <laughs> um, very reluctant to. Other people felt like, you know, so what if we go on 35? You know, like maybe, I, I heard some traffic concerns, you know, it could be dangerous because of fast moving traffic. People were like, so we create a little disruption to people's lives. I mean, at least that wakes up people, you know, kind of draws attention to this. So it was kind of mixed feelings. There were definitely people that wanted to push through that police line and keep going and felt like, why did you set up this kind of arbitrary barrier? And that led to some conflict and some negative interactions with police. And then, of course, you know, there were 
pepper balls fired and kind of chemical spray and then police put on gear and ordered people to disperse and it was an intense scene, like rewatching some of the videos. You don't feel the intensity you felt at the time because of the absurdity of it. And rewatching the videos, it looks, you know, not mostly peaceful. Because it was mostly peaceful. There were just a few clashes and people throwing water bottles. A police vehicle drove through the crowd that was damaged. People threw rocks and some protesters questioned why a police vehicle drove through the crowd. It's a strategy or just to do that to kind of... Did you find out any more about that? Because later that night they did the same thing. Yeah, when we were near Courthouse Square, a police cruiser went through the crowd and they started throwing Gatorade bottles and water bottles and whatever they had at the car. So I was, I don't know if that's a police strategy or what. It's just interesting. I've seen it in other cities too. I mean, sometimes that's, I'm sure a lot of people saw the scenes in New York where the cops kind of ran into the protesters or they were surrounded by protesters and kind of jerked forward, which drew a lot of criticism. Looked like they hit protesters with the car. This was a slow moving cruiser, but mm-hmm. you know, definitely damaged people through rocks and stuff. And police strategy behind it, I actually never got an opportunity to ask anyone about it. But the only crew that had moved through the crowd, it definitely caused damage and led to a reaction. I think that reaction may have led to. You know, Police to play more chemical spray or shooting. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Sarah, since you were both them, was it a build-up? Because it was significantly crazier when we were covering it at night. The whole scene was just crazy. Yeah. And you had it at multiple locations. You had folks over at nearest the safety building, and then you had folks in Courthouse Square. It was like a peaceful protest over in Courthouse Square. But near the safety building and the federal building, there were people who were a little bit more riled up. There were people who were trying to keep the calm, too. Like, Aja Gibbs, a woman who was out there who was one of the people who had a megaphone, she was trying to communicate with the police officers and seemed to be trying to like, control the crowd's emotions a little bit. Yeah, it was a really interesting part of the day that I didn't quite expect for there to be a couple of different protests going on. Of course, all there for a, the same purpose, but especially in the evening, right away, Amelia, we got separated from the get-go because I was trying to swing by and pick up our security woman. There was a march going on at one point more towards the courthouse square, but then in front of St. Clair, it was just escalated right from the get-go. I think state and police, they seemed already in the gear that they had on eventually in the afternoon at the 12 o'clock rally. So I think just from the get-go, and I kind of anticipated that with how the afternoon just escalated a little bit from a peaceful protest and maintained peacefulness, but just kind of things got more passionate as the afternoon went on. And, you know, of course, in the evening, everything always is a little more on edge. And I just, it was that first Saturday after everyone kind of anticipated the evening being a little more on edge, and it certainly was. I mean, even the protesters who were marching, I mean, you could just see the passion in everybody's faces. I will never forget, we were standing right across from the arcade where the trolls on his side. Me and Amelia were standing there on the sidewalk, and we were right in between, kind of on the edge. There was a standoff, essentially, where no one quite knew what was going to happen next. I think people were on their knees, all yelling in unison, one of the phrases that were repeated during the protest and just it was just kind of at a standstill and it was almost like getting a little quiet and not quiet because the chants were still going on but there wasn't a lot of chitter chatter between the protests it was just I had goosebumps I mean that's just kind of what I remember the image that I remember the most from it was quite an experience just to see like the anger people rage from 
build up rage from not just uh, the killing of George Floyd, but other things too. You can just see the rage people had. People were just screaming. Like people were just, uh, you can hear the pain in people's voices. You really could. And it was. That is something that impressed me a lot throughout Saturday, which I think I spent most of Sunday. Sunday I had off work. I, I just was like decompressing from Saturday and really thinking about everything. And what blew my mind was we'd have a we'll march yelling out of breath and then we'd like pull one aside so that we could, you know, talk to them more one-on-one and give them a minute to just tell us more in conversational, you know, like what they're doing out here today. You did a great job with that. Yeah, and just how well-spoken, you know, like, not, it didn't seem out of breath. Like, it just amazed me how they went from passionate, you know, chants with the people they were with to, like, a very well-spoken two minutes of, you know, what they believe needs to change, why they're out here today. Hey, and if you're just joining us, we're down here in front of the federal building downtown at the protest of the killing of George Floyd. Um, I'm here with, could you please say your name? afterwards and he just laid it out <laughs> I was like <laughs> I don't think I could do that what happened to you <laughs> were you up towards the front or what happened <laughs>
these are things they thought about a lot. I was surprised by how many people were ready to be interviewed, just impromptu. What did the crowd look like to you? Who was in the crowd? That's a really good question. I mean, it was such a diverse mix of people, young, old, white, black, so much diversity. These are hundreds and hundreds of people. You know, people brought their kids to the earlier rally. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of families. It was super diverse that Saturday. Now, I stopped by the protest last weekend. You know, so it's actually two Saturdays ago was the, the protest. You know, mm-hmm. It caused some disruption downtown. Last Saturday's protest was, it was just an event down at Courthouse Square. Smaller, I would say, white visitors. So a little different crowd, a little different mood. But, I mean, that's what's interesting about all these protests. It's just such a diverse range of people. A lot of people just feel fed up, and you see them happening, you see these protests happening in every Like last night was in Oakland. You know, this isn't specific to Dayton. It's Dayton or specific, you know, demographics. It's a lot of people in a lot of communities feel like uh, something needs to change with how we police. What do you think this all means? I'm trying to wrap my head around. Is this just the latest headline? Last year, unfortunately, here in Dayton, we went from the water crisis to the KKK rally and the, well, I guess it was the investigation and the water crisis. Which one came first, the federal investigation or the water crisis? I can't remember. Oh, my goodness. Water. Water, the first water crisis, I think, and then federal investigation, (laughs) and then second water crisis from the tornado, and then... Yeah, so we went through some things last year. Obviously, the tornadoes, you know, all these things were still around, but we moved on to different headlines. Do you think this movement is something that has stand power, or do you think this is just like a another story, ultimately? Feels like it has stand power. It's a level of uproar we haven't seen in national protests. I think most people would say since you know, maybe Rodney King or something like that, and it just it feels very different than anything I've seen before. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, like, real, it's not just the feelings that things must change, it's just that there seems to be widespread support for it, and you've seen how Black Lives Matter, people that wouldn't have braced that and felt comfortable saying that earlier, I guess. Like, you know, some, at some point, it wasn't as accepted and braced as it is right now. I, mean, I feel like there is real, yeah, a real sense of urgency for change, and you're seeing people react to it. I mean, the city says it's going to try and do some things. Dayton's Community Police Council says, here's things you can do right now. There's a lot of people that feel like this is an opportunity, unlike any before it, to really make some changes and just general law enforcement reforms. I feel like it has taken power. I mean, you know, obviously we have so much going on with COVID and, you know, questions right around the corner, but that doesn't change what has been kind of long-simmering feelings about this. And this is still in the news. These protests are still large and still going on all over the place, and it's possible we'll see another incident like this, you know, and we saw what happened in Louisville, got inside her home. I feel like we're going to see movement. I really do. Black people have always known this, and black people have always said it, but I feel like black people are, like, saying it louder. People who were more reserved from all sorts of political affiliations and social economic classes are saying loudly, this is not <laughs> something that is made up or something that should be underplayed. This is actually reality for a lot of people in our country. And I think the situation in Central Park actually started a lot of this conversation, too. Of course, you had the the death of a jogger and some other things that happened before that, but it kind of built from there. A lot of things all at once there. These protests, of course, aren't just about George Floyd or uh, most of the protesters feel like how police treat 
black populations is different, and they feel like they're treated unfairly by law enforcement. We're seeing a lot of voices come into the fold. This feels unlike any time before it, and I don't think that's going to change for a while. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of people that try to keep this in the conversation, you know, try to keep this kind of front of mind, even despite all these other things going on in the world. The voices have gotten louder, and, you know, a lot more people join the calls for reforms. Taking a break to remind you that you're listening to the What Had Happened Was podcast, and I'm Amelia Robinson. This podcast is brought to you by Dayton Daily News. As our community and nation respond to the coronavirus threat, the Dayton Daily News is here, providing up-to-the-minute local coverage on our website and app, and going in-depth so you know what's really going on. Our news team is working around the clock to provide information you can trust to keep your family safe and connected. As a community, we may be hunkered down in our homes, but we are still Dayton strong. We have survived so much together, and we'll get through this crisis too. The Dayton Daily News, your trusted source for local news. When Corey first mentioned the staying power of what is going on right now, I think something I was hearing a lot of at the protest, talking with protesters, is just the fact that by no stretch of the imagination are these problems new. I think the undeniable nature of that video, from what I've been hearing, activated some people who before they maybe just didn't get involved for one reason or another, or they didn't learn about what exactly is the problem. Maybe they acknowledged that there was a problem, but they didn't understand it. But I think I worked that first Saturday with you and Corey, and this past Saturday as well, and there were some people coming forward during the speeches this, just this past Saturday where a couple white people had come forward and crying, saying that even that first Saturday, they came out to the protest, didn't quite understand exactly like what everybody was talking about, and then they spent the whole past week watching more videos like Netflix is putting out right now. They're highlighting seven documentaries you can watch to kind of learn about the history of the dehumanization of the black community and they just really saying that they they were kind of ashamed that it took them this long to get activated but I think that I think the timing of a few killings in the last like month that back 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 and then followed by the killing of George Floyd in that undeniable video that really I think shook this up in a way like Corey said it feels different than I, events that I've witnessed in you know, in the last few years. What I would say also in prior incidents, you know, maybe people felt there was more gray area, but you watch George Floyd get kneeled on for nearly nine minutes and just hear all people crying out and just, you know, kind of, you see what looks like, I guess, kind of indifference on the cop's face. I mean, that video, I haven't heard anybody come to his defense because there was, it was so clearly out of line to spark this conversation, just kind of awaken people to the issues here. I think the coronavirus might play a part in this too because A, we all have been in the house and away from other people and with nothing else to do, so you can't really hide from it. There's ways you can trick your mind into rationalizing things, but you cannot rationalize a man kneeling on another man's neck and in front of children, no less, and the man dying and calling out for his dead mother. It wasn't a really quick interaction. I mean, it's eight minutes of kneeling on a guy as he cries out. It's one of the worst things, extremely painful video. It is interesting that you bring up the COVID because it is eight people, I'm sure, have been cooped up. It was interesting to see people attend rallies in those numbers. 
you know, given that mostly people have tried to avoid each other. I mean, I will say when pepper spray and stuff is being administered, I'm sure Sarah and I both had people cough on us. I was coughing. Not that I would know this or think it will necessarily, but I hope it doesn't help the spread. I don't think there is a super safe way to protest. Masks hopefully help, but I hope people don't get sick from going and making their message clear and trying to... Yeah, that's one thing I was worried about the whole time, too. I mean, we kept our mask on for the most part, but I slipped it off a couple. And really, the masks are not 100% anyway. So I actually know more people now that have COVID than I did earlier this year. How do we prepare as a news organization for this coverage? That's what's hard. A lot of the protests since then have gone kind of how we received the first protest to go. I mean, it's hard from a news standpoint because you kind of have to go to everything to make sure you're not missing anything. And uh, not, not to devalue the importance of protests that don't lead to police clashes or lead to disruptions, but I guess the coverage is a little bit different. The criticism I heard during the rallies was, you know, the news only pays attention when there's kind of chaos and craziness. If there wasn't that, you wouldn't be covering it. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but, I mean, it is... How much can we keep covering? I mean, we've, we've done a pretty good job. We've tried to make it to most protests, but at times there's some across the city at multiple times, you know, or multiple communities, and which one is the bigger one or which one has, I guess, people by our crowd size or what's being said there. It is a good question. How do we continue covering it forward? I mean, we have shown a willingness to continue to go. It's just it's hard to go to everything, you know. I guess it's just about as much, not just covering the protests, but covering what the protests cause, you know, if there's actual policy changes. or the, the protests aren't, they aren't of themselves, you know, it's a way to event for sure, but they're supposed to lead to changes. So I think our responsibility is seeing if the people that are asking to make changes actually do it. Yeah, I was talking about, too, so much how we prepared to cover it. I know we had some meetings and stuff like that, but I felt like it was an all-hands-on-deck sort of situation where people jumped in and did their best. To your point, it's hard to cover it. You know, we didn't know what to expect before it happened. And it's crazy because I miss, and I'm sure Sarah missed, you know, we saw lots of things. We covered a lot of things. It was important that we were there. People got arrested very close to me, and which turned out to be somewhat controversial arrests. You know, the, the people were arrested say they didn't feel like they did very much or did nothing to be arrested. They were very close to where I was when they arrested me. I didn't see it just because there's so much to try to keep track of. Coverage is important. It would have been nice to actually see what led up to those moments that you know people were arrested or that led to either police action or use of force. But we can't be everywhere in those scenes and there's just so many people. Yeah, I think we did the best coverage we could, but I still wish I would have caught some things that I did. Yeah, there was this feeling of great responsibility on especially the evening protest that first Saturday when I was with Amelia because it was like the the protest going on in the state building, very intense, and, you know, right there was the police car that was right in the middle that was getting sprayed with graffiti. And we're doing a Facebook Live, and I know that another protest is going on closer to Courthouse Square, where there would be more of an opportunity for us to pull people aside, give them a platform to have a conversation with essentially our audience, you know, it's us, but it's via us, it's to the audience of why they're out there. It felt torn at times, trying to make sure it can't be in two places at one time, and you know, this is going on in front of the safety building, this is very intense, and this needs to be documented, but also there is the more peaceful action going on over there, and it's this weight of determining what our audience is going to see, you know, they're sitting in their living rooms, and whatever we're showing is what they know is going on downtown. 
And I think that was the first time I really felt that, like, decision-making responsibility, like, in the moment, there's not one event going on. You need to physically bust your butt to, like, try to make sure everybody gets the best picture of what is overall going on tonight. We were split up. Because you went to go get the security guard. I was perfectly fine with that, but then we were told to try to stay together. <laughs> yeah, we were trying to lose the security guard. <laughs> so at one point, we were heading back downtown, and then like I got a call from my husband who wanted me to go to the safest place, and he's like, well, the danger is behind you. And I was like, we should go back over there. And he was like, what? Because <laughs> we are eyewitnesses. We were there for a reason. Okay, let's go. Okay. Let's see if someone wants to see someone that's being part of the scene in here. Let's take a Gatorade and a lot of the beverages that were thrown at the uh, police car. Um, the canisters are being thrown further in flash mobs, too, so we're going to try to get the heck out of the way so we don't get hurt, obviously. But, um, but the tear gas is going into right now. Tear gas is going right now into Courthouse Square, um, and people are basically leaving. We're on the side here. We're watching the, um, watching the police uh, come in, throwing canisters this away. We're kind of on a. There was a couple times, and it was miscommunication with the police and with the mayors about who could be there because we were given permission to be be there and at one point later that night I was threatened with arrest but that's another story completely but yeah, anyone ever apologized yeah Major Johns apologized even though it wasn't his fault at all he was I thought he was a professional when he talked to me his thing was miscommunication and I don't know which cop that was who was rude to me at all it really doesn't matter at this point. But anyhow, we're there to show people what was going on. Is what we do as journalists every day. We we record history as it happens. It, it's an important thing to do. It was scary at times, I guess. Like when those kids are doing donuts and hanging out the doors, that was frightening to me. I could see Amelia grab each other's shoulder in like that like knee jerk reaction. Yeah. Five times. You know, and like you're with a new driver, and they kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I will never forget from Saturday night, was not to make light of anything going on, but it felt kind of a separate instance from like all the intensity of the night. I was with Amelia and it was getting late. I think curfew had come and gone and they were really starting to crack down on people getting out of downtown, get going home. Like Amelia said, there was some miscommunication on like where we should be standing, what some police officers were very okay with us being in the immediate area. Some were like, nope, sorry go. So at one point, they grabbed me and Amelia. They're like, okay, we understand you're being you to stand behind. We were like behind these um, kind of big cement blocks with these bushes. Just kind of recording. There was like not many protesters around anymore, but we were very much in a dark area with these few, I think they were still in their SWAT gear, but we were understand we were safe there. And then the SWAT police officers got called to move on down. <laughs> But leaving us in this dark, shaded <laughs> area, I look at Amelia, and we are just very much in dark clothing, just staying <laughs> in the dark, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but it worked out. <laughs>
Oh, Corey, I was going to ask you one thing before we leave. What is the proposal right now? The mayor's proposal, it's like five parts. One of them is get bias and de-escalation training for police. They want to review police oversight and selection and try to identify ways to increase diversity in the force. They want to increase transparency in the process to file suspected misconduct complaints. And they want to, they said, strengthen a board that essentially reviews citizens' complaints against police officers. A big one was assess all recent incidents in which police use force and try to identify patterns of bias or other things like that. So that's the errors plan. The NAACP also released an eight-part plan. Community Police Council has some recommendations that I, some of their stuff has to do with cultural understanding, training, and really using, you know, putting it to practice. Uh, they'd like to see Dayton officers who really committed to the community and love it, and, you know, want to be connected to the communities they serve. I think the, their critique being that police officers often don't live in the communities they police. Obviously, more diversity in the police force. The mayor's one, I guess, gets a lot of attention because that's what she says she wants to be held accountable for. And you know, they're going to be kind of her goals are going to be assessed quarterly. Some of them are still the exact specifications of what they mean have yet to be outlined. But there's a lot of ideas for reforms. I guess the mayor's probably takes is a big focus just be, you know who she is and her influence. And, uh, I guess the FOP, the police union, has agreed to do those things, and so is the police chief. Hmm. But uh, see what those exactly mean. You know, some of them are just kind of main concepts, I guess. And I know you'll be there to cover it. That'll be me. <laughs> you too, Sarah. I'll tell you, I was never proud of you guys that weekend. You guys really kicked ass. I say you guys did a great job. Yeah. I, I loved your night coverage. It was amazing. Well, we loved your day coverage and Sarah's night and day coverage and continuous coverage. <laughs> Go Bobcat, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for talking to me. I appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. for having us, Amelia. I enjoy working with those two, even in trying times. Find Corey and Sarah's work in the pages of the Dayton Daily News. The What It Happened Was podcast, which incidentally was just named Best Podcast by the Society of Professional Journalists Cincinnati Pro Chapter, was recorded in my house with my trusty cat, Tigger, shredding newspapers right beside me to get my attention. The show was written, edited, and produced by me, Amelia Robinson. Its artwork is by my good friend, Troy Liming of TL Creates of Columbus. Until next time, stay safe and at least six feet away from each other. Bye-bye. When you're sick, every minute counts. So don't go anywhere. Go to DispatchHealth.com where high-quality medical care comes directly to you. No getting out of a sick bed. No crazy driving to an emergency room. No endless paperwork. No hospital waiting rooms. Visit DispatchHealth.com to learn about our medical professionals, then make house calls. Dispatch Health is covered by Medicare and most major insurance. Go to DispatchHealth.com.